As the Russia-Ukraine war continues, cyber operations have been disrupting critical infrastructure and civilians, not just in Ukraine, but beyond. Hi, I'm Matthew Schwartz with Information Security Media Group. And to discuss the cyber impact of the ongoing conflict, I am joined by Emma Raffray, a senior analyst with Cyber Peace Institute. Emma, it's great to have you here today. Hi, Matthew. I'm delighted to be with you. So I want to hear a little bit about the Cyber Peace Institute, please. And then I know that you've been tracking a number of cyber operations and attacks and have some really interesting figures as well. But let's just start with the Institute itself, which, as I understand, is based in Geneva. Yes, uh, that's spot on, Matthew. So uh, we're the Cyber Peace Institute. And as you say, we're headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland since 2019. So we're a pretty young organization. And we've got a non-governmental Status. So we're a nonprofit organization whose core mission really is to reduce the harm from cyber attacks on people's lives worldwide, to provide assistance to vulnerable communities, and also to call for responsible cyber behavior, accountability, and cyber peace. And really at the heart of our mission and the work that we do is the recognition that cyberspace is all about people, which is obviously a very topical subject when we're talking about the ongoing armed conflict in Ukraine. And certainly discussing any conflict or any reality when it comes to cybersecurity or online attacks, you need to have facts and figures. So that's one of the reasons I'm so interested in what Cyberpeace Institute does, because you are tracking what is happening. And that includes what's going on with the conflict. What have you been seeing so far? Yeah, so at the core of our work are data-centric projects in which we uh, document cyber attacks and harm um, that's generated as a result of these attacks. So we launched a platform called Cyber Attacks in Times of Conflict, in which we're tracking attacks on organizations in Ukraine, the Russian Federation, and other countries which have been attacked as a result of spillover effects of the conflict itself. So to date, we've documented attacks on 27 countries beyond Ukraine and the Russian Federation. And we've got in excess of 300 cyber attacks documented as of the 29th of July. And really the part that is most worrying in, in the context of the incidents that we've tracked today is that 19 different sectors have been targeted as part of these campaigns. And of these, we've seen particularly worrisome attacks against public administrations, media organizations, the financial sector, the energy sector, telecommunications and the ICT, as well as transportation networks. So yeah, these are some of sort of the high level figures. And so far, we've also documented attribution by third parties to 36 different threat actors, ranging from nation states to hacking collectives and cyber criminal groups. I know that you, in terms of the impact this has, break down these attacks into tactics, strategies that you're seeing in the cyber operations realm, the online attack realm. What are some of these tactics and strategies? And then I'd like to get into the impact, of course, that they're going to be having on people. Yeah, of course. I mean, one of the first things really is I'd like to sort of reframe that question a little bit, because when we talk about strategies and potentially motives. This is something that we we really avoid and um, that particular categorization of incidents because these are rarely known at the offset. And in order to avoid falling into speculation and non-factual content, we're really focusing our data collection on the impact of cyber attacks 
on people and society. So the way that the Cyber Peace Institute has actually collected its data today is by grouping it into what we consider primary digital impacts. And for this, we've got four core categories that we're using. We've got destruction, disruption, data weaponization, and disinformation and propaganda. And I can go into these in a, in a little bit more detail. And obviously, some of the attacks cross over into multiple of these different impact categories. But yeah, if I, if I go through a little bit what, why we've done this and what it really means in terms of the cyber threat landscape relating to the conflict. So destructive attacks are really attacks that lead to the deletion of data or damage to systems, rendering them unrecoverable or unoperable for significant periods of time. And in the context of the conflict, we've seen six significant strains of data wiping malware that's been deployed. And these really have been uh, targeted against uh, Ukrainian entities and organizations going far beyond uh, military targets, which uh, might be more acceptable in the context of an armed conflict. In terms of disruption, it's what we're looking at attacks that lead to the interruption of services and operations. And what we've seen a lot in the terms of the conflict are the deployment of uh, distributed denial of service attacks. We've seen these in, in various phases. So in the early stages of the, of the conflict, both prior and in the immediate aftermath of the invasion, we've seen a large amount of DDoS attacks on Ukrainian organizations. But as the conflict moved forward, following a call to civilians to support in cyber activities by the Ukrainian government, we've also seen DDoS attacks against the Russian Federation and organizations over there. And then in addition to this, we've seen the targeting of public institutions in NATO member countries relating to the current geopolitical and economic context of the conflict. And so just to be clear as well, you're not necessarily attributing all these attacks. These aren't necessarily attacks that would be launched by Russia against Ukraine, by Ukraine against Russia. There's other parties involved here as well. Absolutely. So really, when we go back to how we started to collect this data in the first place. So our initial focus was very much on what are the cyber attacks that are targeting specifically Ukraine. And as we started to collect the data, it was immediately clear in the week that followed the invasion that we needed to expand that scope as the threat was spilling onto civilian objects that were beyond the borders of Ukraine. So we're also looking at attacks that are happening against Russian entities, but these might not be coming or stemming from the Ukrainian state. So for example, we've seen certain actors like hacking collectives such as Kilner and Anonymous who are non-state actors who are committing attacks against entities in both Ukraine and the Russian Federation. Excellent. Thank you for that clarification. It can be very difficult to keep track of who's doing what to whom, supposedly. So that is the destructive side of what you've been tracking. Then you said there's a few other main strategies that you've been seeing. Yeah, so the third angle is to look at data weaponization. And really, these are attacks that lead to the theft or exfiltration of data or the acquisition of data for espionage, surveillance or intelligence purposes. So what we've seen quite significantly in, in the context of the conflict is what we're calling hack and leak style attacks, where the theft and leak of data is actually leading to the publication of this data online, but it's being done in the context of political or ideological factors rather than in the context, for example, of ransomware attacks where 
the data is being published online as a form of trying to entice financial gain. And then the fourth aspect is really the disinformation angle. So a huge amount of disinformation takes place outside of what we would scope in our data collection. We really look at cyber attacks and operations where there's been an intrusion on a system that's led to, for example, a disinformation or cyber-enabled information operations. And we've seen a number of these in the context of this conflict, especially being done through defacements of websites or defacement of media channels, for example, through live streaming of TV channels, etc. We're discussing the Russia-Ukraine war, but there's also been spillover impacting other countries. What have you been seeing on that front? Yeah, so as we've been monitoring the space, we began to see a flurry of activity by a hacking collective called Killnet that was targeting what we noted as really NATO member countries or countries that were in some way associated with NATO in terms of their public positioning on certain topics. And we started to see initially attacks on transportation, for example, attacks on U.S. airports and Polish airports at the beginning, that then migrate into a significant number of attacks on public institutions within NATO member countries. And to date, we've tracked 10 NATO member countries that have had their systems disrupted or their websites or public portals taken down as a result of DDoS attacks by this particular group. We've also seen other countries such as Finland, Sweden or Moldova, who are not necessarily NATO member countries today, subjected to cyber attacks in this context. And really beyond just looking at at the activities of Killnet, I mean, we've documented today 27 countries that have been impacted by cyber attacks that we consider related to the conflict in some way or to the economic or geopolitical situation surrounding it. Another way that we've seen spillover is the targeting of media outlets in different countries, such as Croatia, Latvia, the Czech Republic and France, where be it uh, TV channels or media websites haven't been targeted either through DDoS attacks or through attacks that are specifically aimed at spreading disinformation or propaganda relating to the war. So we've definitely seen spillover beyond the borders of the two belligerent countries. So obviously we have an ongoing war between Russia, which has invaded Ukraine, but there's also been massive impact on civilians as Cyberpeace Institute has been tracking. What can you tell me about that impact? So this is really the the bread and butter of our work here at the Institute. And because of the appalling loss of life of attacks using traditional weapons in Ukraine, really the impact of cyber attacks and operations has actually been masked in a way by the reporting of what are very, very distressing scenes in the country. And the volume and scope of cyber attacks in Ukraine has actually been very high and would have normally drawn a much higher attention if the kinetic attacks hadn't been so severe. And attacks really, in this situation, attacks against Ukraine by the Russian state are not new. But what we're seeing really in the context of war and what is causing us a significant amount of alarm and concern is attacks on critical infrastructure and essential services that are not military targets. So we've seen different types of impacts on the civilian population and organizations more broadly. So firstly, when we look at destructive attacks, we've documented several of these in how far they've actually cause harm to the civilian population. So one of them is on the 25th of February. It's a wiper attack 
that targeted the border control station. And this actually slowed the processing of refugees crossing the border from Ukraine into Romania. So this is one very real example of how cyber attacks have a concrete impact in real life and on the civilian population. You've also got the attack on uh, Viasat, KSAT satellite network on the day of the invasion. And the impact of this was felt both in Ukraine and beyond. I mean, internet access went offline for some users for two weeks. Nearly 9,000 subscribers of a satellite internet service provider were deprived of internet in France. You're looking at the loss of remote monitoring access to wind turbines in Germany. So even though the wind turbines didn't stop working, it's impacting staff who are operating these systems and trying to maintain their operations. In terms of attacks on electricity, for example, we've seen an attack that were foiled on the 8th of April, which if it had been successful, would have deprived roughly 2 million people of electricity in Ukraine and made it very difficult to restore power. And we've seen that in 2015, what the actual impact of an attack on substations can have, where 225,000 customers in Western Ukraine went offline, had their electricity disconnected because of a cyber attack. So really, at the destructive level, we've definitely seen an impact on the civilian population. And it goes far beyond this. When we look at attacks on telecommunication service providers, for example, in Ukraine, we've documented a couple of these in March, which led to 12 to 15 hours of network downtime for those companies, and therefore, as a result, for the civilian population being unable to connect to these networks. On the financial services, we've seen DDoS attacks targeting Ukrainian organizations where banking customers reported problems with online payments, uh, banking apps, and also in limited cases, being able to access ATMs. So really, we're seeing how these attacks are actually disrupting the day-to-day life of civilians, which is even more poignant when we're thinking about attacks taking place in a conflict zone where there are other core needs that are needing to be met in terms of the security and welfare of that population. If we're looking beyond really the Ukrainian border and the attacks on NATO member countries, we've also seen how these are impacting services accessible normally to the public. So the Latvian state-owned railway company was attacked on the 1st of June, and this led to the disruption of online services, including ticketing sales and downtime of the company's website and mobile app. And on the 27th of June, we saw attacks on a secure national data network in Lithuania, which led to downtime of the state tax inspectorate and the migration department, which was forced to suspend online services for several hours. So really, these are are services that are really essential to the functioning of society today. And when cyber attacks are actually impacting these services, it's really the people who are feeding it the most. Cyberpeace Institute is providing a really valuable service by giving us details on the attacks that are happening. Tell me about the importance of monitoring attacks. What's the rationale behind all this? Really, it's a critical mission to monitor attacks in this space for a number of reasons. As we've discussed earlier, first of all, is the fact that attribution takes time. In order to get to a legal or technical process of attribution, we're not going to know the full understanding of who's been targeting who and in what way for potentially years down the line, if at all. So we need to be documenting these attacks in order to be able to encourage investigative work on these particular cyber activities. The second one is 
the tracing and measuring of harm is extremely difficult. And in order to be able to do this, we can't depend on isolated incidents to be able to understand how attacks are actually impacting the civilian population or individuals or organizations. So really by documenting and monitoring these attacks over time, we're therefore going to be able to apply certain methodological considerations to see how we actually measure and assess that harm in terms of the immediate impact it had during an attack, but also the long-term harm that it's caused to society. And it's really something that I would like to wrap up with is really shining the light on why we're documenting this and the importance of having the community also contribute to this effort of documenting what's happening in order to further investigations in the future. And then the third component, really, in terms of why we're documenting these attacks in the way that we're doing so is also as a reminder to states that they have a responsibility to protect the civilian population. Under international humanitarian law, there are established rules on how operations can be conducted, including operations using cyber tools and cyber means. And as we've documented in this platform, the targets of these attacks that are being committed both by state and non-state actors in the context of the conflict are actually going far beyond the targeting of military objectives. And really, it's about reminding states of their responsibility to protect and secure the networks of the civilian population. Thank you, Emma, for the work that you've been doing and to Cyber Peace Institute for tracking this so that we can get some numbers behind what's happening. I know that's essential for policy, also holding people accountable and giving us a sense of what is actually happening. So thanks so much for sharing your insights with us today. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to discuss this subject with you. I've been speaking with Emma Raffray, Senior Analyst with Cyber Peace Institute. I'm Matthew Schwartz with ISMG. Thank you for joining us.